To start us off today, I want to read the text that is going to be the placeholder or the primary fixture of our entire series. So for three weeks, really coming at this one set of verses, this one parable or this one story from three different perspectives and truth. So uh, it shows up in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. It's going to be on the screens as well as on the app. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll be able to see it on there to follow along. Um, Jesus is talking. Um, He's got a crowd of people, um, religious leaders of the day, as well as disciples of the day. He's in the temple and his authority is being questioned. And he has this story. He goes into this story. There's a context that I'll set up in a little bit. But a man had two sons and he went to the first and he said, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. And he, the son answered, yeah, probably not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went And he went to the other son and he said the same thing to him. And he answered, for sure, dad, but he did not go. Uh, Which of the two? And then Jesus turns and the story time is now over. And now comes the kind of uh, question and answer time. Uh, Which of the two did the will of his father? They said uh, the first. And who knows how long it took them to think about that answer or whatever. But Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go, that's pretty explicit language in a temple setting, by the way, go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So, Same story for three weeks, focusing on three different perspectives or three different angles on this. Um, The first week is going to be all about the deciding piece of it. Uh, Week two is going to be about self-deception, and week three is about changing our minds. So a little bit of backstory on me. Some of you know this already, but I spent about six summers of my childhood, mostly elementary school age and then early into middle school, uh, living up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Uh, which is a great place to visit. Many of you have done, spent the summers uh, visiting over there because COVID doesn't exist over there. Um, and I'm just kidding about that. But um, you go up there and it's a beautiful, like touristy summer spot. Um, and, but when you live there, you know all of the fun things. Like you swim at Honeysuckle Beach. You stay away from the resort because like, you know, everybody's there. Um, but we, we would have all of our spots that we would go to and it's got a big giant lake. And part of that big giant lake is... Uh, uh, a part called Tubbs Hill, which is right next to the resort that you can hike into. And if you know where you're going, there is a cliff that you can jump. There's a rope swing too, but I don't trust people. I don't know who tied that rope, so I don't do that one. But I do trust the rock um, that you can jump off and, and do the cliff jumping. Uh, in my memory, um, that rock was about 100 feet high. Um, I have gone back recently, and it looks like they've lowered that rock to about 15 to 20 feet. So I don't know how they did it, but congratulations to them. Um, during like sleepovers in the summertime um, between Sega Genesis games with my buddy Spence, we would talk and we would talk and we would talk about how much we loved jumping off of the rock at Tubbs Hill and how we would, you know, decide to do twists or flips or uh, all kinds of, you know, we'd talk real aggressive like about it. Um, We would talk about it so much that eventually Spence's older brother Jackson would call us on our bluff and take us out there and he would say, all right, let's see it. 
you guys talk about this all the time. Let's see you do this. And we'd be so excited when he would say, you know, let's go. Let's get in the car. I'll drive because he was older than us, right? Um, I'll drive you guys out there. We'll go cliff jumping at Tubbs Hill. And the entire time we're talking and talking about how we're going to do this and, the, you know, the moves we're going to make and all this kind of how exciting it is and, and the thrill of it all. And, and um, then we, we would get there. And, and even, even while even like the 15 minute hike into the actual cliff jumping spot, we'd be talking and talking and talking and talking. And then we'd get to the spot and we'd get up to the top. Um, and then we would find ourselves talking about like this topic starts changing and we'd say, yeah, wish it wasn't so windy out. You know, it's a little bit windier than I remember it being. Does the water look low to you? The water looks a little bit low. Uh, we should let everybody else go in front of us. Like we, <laughs> who are we to assume that we should deserve to go first? Like, please, please, by all means, little girls go jump, do your thing. We will stay back and, and do whatever. Um, and we come to find out, obviously he had called our bluffs. We liked the appearance of being people who liked cliff jumping without actually letting our feet leave the rock surface. Kind of like even how today, I like buying Patagonia gear, clothing, whatever, products, because I like the appearance of being extremely outdoorsy, but I really also enjoy brushing my teeth in a sink with running water. Ergo, I've probably never grown out of this phase. It's just that the elements have now changed. So standing at the top of this rock with our toes hanging over, much like you've probably done at some sort of cliff jumping escapade, whether it's uh, in Hawaii somewhere or wherever it is, maybe Columbia River, I don't know. Um, and you stand there and you're on this decision-making point. You're, you're, you're now having to kind of make this decision. Am I going to do this or am I not going to do this? And the cries from the water, from the people who have already done this or are down there already are saying, go, 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 do it, do it, do it, do it. Uh, and then eventually that evolves into, okay, fine, either do it or don't do it, but do something, right? Pick one because now people are waiting on you and my arms are getting tired treading water here. And I've been a parent long enough to know that I've been on that treading water sort of phase of life uh, many, many times. And those phrases, those words have come out of my mouth, either do it or don't do it. But like, I got, something's got to change here. We got to get moving. Talking about it gives us the sense of progress without actually making our feet leave the comforts and the security of rock. We think that talking about it is progress enough. And even when we get to the top and we're, we're faced with this, now it's the immediate, now I've either got to do it or I don't do it. Um, and if I don't do it, like I can't talk about it any longer. I, I, I'm going to have to either move and get out of the way or, or step off the rock or I guess jump. And so like, let me think about it. And I'm, you know, we say things like, I'm, I'm not saying no, I'm just not saying yes yet. Right. But to not decide is to decide. And so at that point, we realize um, we have become accustomed to living in the age of wait and see. And we, we oftentimes find ourselves in this spot, like not even just standing on a rock, but just in life in general. We say, I'm in, like, but dot, 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 for now. I'm in for now, um, unless or until something better comes along. But I'm, I'm in, like, I, I want to do this. I want to jump off this rock. But then I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll see. I'm in for now, uh, whatever. Uh, my wife and I have this show up a lot of times in kind of our, like, doing life together as a married couple. Um, Kylie will say things like, we don't have anything on the calendar tonight. What do you want our evening to look like? And I'll say, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't really care. Let's just see how it goes. Um, because I'm non-committal to some things, right? Um, and later that night, and I won't say what time because she'll be mad at me, but I'll say, hey, we should go like grab some takeout or start a movie or hike Badger because again, I like the appearance of being somebody who likes hiking Badger 
for those reasons. Um, and she'll say to me something like, oh, it's, it's too late. Like that moment has passed. Like I'm going to bed. And again, I won't say that time uh, again, but uh, we like, we, we live in that age of wait and see, and we're, we're sort of comfortable with that. And we, we do this in relationships. A lot of times we do this with job changes. Um, we do this with schooling. If you're, if you're a graduating senior this last year and you're, you're still being asked, what's your plans or you're, you're in school right now, what's your plans for after? Well, I don't know. I don't want to stake my flag anywhere. I don't want to like put something in the ground. Cause that means I've got to go through with it. I like to delay this thing as long as possible because for a lot of different reasons, I want to make educated decisions. I don't want to rush into things. I don't want to be, I don't want to be hasty about anything. Uh, I, I want to make sure that this is the right thing to do. Because once my feet leave this rock, there's no going back, right? Once the feet leave the rock, you can't change your mind halfway down to the water. It's, that's it. It's, it's happening in that way. In the late 1800s, a Christian philosopher likened this to a sense of personal faith. He said, like, your faith should be like jumping off of a rock. He didn't use those words, but in, in, a, in a roundabout sense, for our, the sake of our analogy, um, if your faith doesn't feel like you've jumped off, off a rock cliff and there's no going back to it, then perhaps you're missing something. His name is Soren Kierkegaard, uh, and he would say this, it's a, it's a hallmark of humanity to have a choice. We've been given a gift, which is the gift of choice, but you must indeed choose. The exit is quickly approaching. To not take an exit off the freeway is to make a decision to stay on the freeway. To not make a choice is to make a choice. And then he goes on and he says this about cowardice and, and delaying the inevitable and not taking a stand for making a decision. We've been faced with this either or, and we kind of like this middle ground. We don't want to stake it because, you know, it, it puts us in a tough position. Cowardice wants to prevent the step of making a decision. To accomplish this, it takes itself a host of glorious names. And I think I got this on, the, on a slide. Go ahead and switch that over if you would, Andrew. I'm going to read it from here. Uh, in the name of caution, cowardice abhors any overhastiness. It is against doing anything before the time is ripe. Why would we rush? Like, let's, let's make sure that this is, like, we're good. We don't, we don't even know. This is such an unknown decision. Besides, is it not best to speak of a continued endeavor, which is by far the superior act, rather than of a sudden decision? Ah, uh, not decision, but continual striving, continuous endeavor. I added this, this is me, but like this whole phrase of what we, what we hear so often is, I'm just, I'm just on a journey. We're always on a journey because we don't want to stake our claim in either one because we don't want to be like, well, you know, penciled in or, or in this one certain category. We like the inevitability of just, I'm still figuring this out. I'm on a journey. What a glorious expression. What a glorious deception. What a glorious expression, tongue in cheek. In reality, what a glorious deception. Just prior to uh, that parable that Jesus tells in verse 28 of chapter 21 of Matthew, the context, and I'll go back and read this context for you now, is Jesus is in the temple. Um, He is making some claims. He's drawing a crowd. He's starting to get famous a little bit. People are starting to kind of figure out what do we do with this person? He seems to have, like they were used to religious uprising. They were used to uh, religious leaders stepping up and saying, you know, I'm going to be the next uh, leader or savior or something. I'm going to save the people. I'm going to be, you know, I'm fine. I'll I'll be the person who uh, uh, changes the scenario between our relationship with Rome and us and all that kind of stuff. So, They were used to people like this. Uh, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Who, Who are you to tell us anything about how we should live? our lives. Jesus replied, I'll ask you a question. How about that? If you answer me, let's play a game. 
I'll ask you a question. If you answer me, I'll answer you. Um, John's baptism, where did it come from? John being John the Baptist, the one that shows up a little bit pre-Jesus. He comes as like a precursor or uh, some paving the way of righteousness for, for Jesus to come. Uh, so then he, he begins to question them on this. On this, by the way, highly in, in, in this scenario, we wouldn't know it now, but highly politicized scenario where the people have gone one way, the religious leaders have gone one way. How do we deal with John the Baptist and, and what he said and what he did? He seemed like this Old Testament prophet who kind of showed up in the middle of nowhere, has these you know, kind of radical claims towards a certain type of faith. And, and Jesus is asking them his baptism. When he baptized people, what did it mean? Why did people go down to the water to get baptized by John? What was it all involved in that? Answer me this, was it from heaven or was it from men? Was it actually from God or was it the creation of man? Was it just another person who's kind of doing their thing. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say it's from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him and go get baptized yourself? But if we say it's from men, we're afraid of the people for they all hold that John was a prophet. They're in a quandary, right? If they go with what um, the people would want to hear, that, that John was significantly different, that he was a prophet of some sort, that he was from God, then there's gonna be this conviction of why they didn't do it. But if they say what they really feel, and what they really feel is it was a manufactured manipulation tool by men. Then he's gonna, they're gonna, you know, make, a, they're gonna make a, a bunch of enemies with the people who actually liked John and liked the things that he said. So they answered Jesus in this safe question. Well, we don't know. We're on a journey. We're on a journey to figure this out. We don't, we're not sure. So we don't want to stake our flag in either way. You can't pin us into a corner. We're not going to say one thing that is going to exclude to the other. Then he said, well, if you want to play that game, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And then he goes into the parable of the two sons that we talked about at the very beginning of this. This is his way of saying, this is funny. Like this is the quandary. This is the cowardice of not wanting to stake our flag, not wanting to decide either it is or it isn't, but which one is it? Well, we want to kind of play this. We're still, um, the time is not ripe. Um, it's, uh, why be over hasty in this? Why, why make a decision now? It's so much easier to gather more information to make an educated decision later on this when we really know what we're supposed to do or whatever. So he moves on in our, um, and then he goes on and tells that parable of the, uh, of the two sons. In our highlighted parable, Jesus describes two sons, which are basically two ways of decisiveness. Uh, a moment on parables, anytime that Jesus teaches a parable, it's an assumption that, that this actual thing did not actually happen. He, he wasn't naming two sons as if this story was for real. Um, he's trying to kind of illustrate a principle, a life principle about what we do with this. He's trying to teach us something. Uh, and, and the thing that he's teaching us in the, in the sense is he's trying to have these people be put in a position to answer the question, what are you going to do about me? Like, and, and who are you really? This is, the, this is the answer. This is the question that's wrestling through these religious leaders' minds as they look at the person of Jesus. Who are you really? And what am I supposed to do with you? Who are you really? And what am I supposed to do with you? And this is the exact same question that we wrestle with 2,000 years later when it comes to Jesus. On a personal level, at some point, we are faced with the person of Jesus, whether it's through a church or, or through our own personal uh, reading of scripture or um, source, some sort of like, we're just trying to deal with kind of like the, um, 
spiritual elements of life and we're going on this spiritual journey and, and we meet the person of Jesus and everybody seems to like Jesus seems to be cool with Democrats and Republicans alike. Um, and so the question then becomes, who are you really? And then what am I supposed to do with you? Do I, do I prioritize you? Do I treat you as a spiritual wisdom teacher uh, on, on the equal levels with say uh, Buddha or the Hindu teachings or whatever? Or, or is this something sort of different in this way? Um, what do I do with you and who are you really? Growing up, uh, going to Christian camps, for me, the question was consistently framed within the context of eternal bliss or eternal damnation. Like, what are you going to do with Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is and what are you going to do with him? And here's your decisions. You have eternal bliss or eternal damnation. It was usually like the first or second night of camp. We hadn't been given the option to burn all of our secular CDs yet. That's like the fourth night. But the first or second night was which kind of version are you going to do? Are you going to be hot or are you going to be cold? And there's this verse in Revelation that talks about the two types of water that come into the city of that time. And there's hot water, cold water. But if you're lukewarm, you're kind of useless. And so I throw you out. I spew you out of my mouth. And so whoever was teaching that night would be like, you either got to be hot or you got to be cold. Because like this middle ground with one foot in and one foot out, if you got one foot in religion, one foot like cool with Jesus and then one foot like cool with Green Day, like you got to figure this out because you can't be both. Either you hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. And it shows up again in in First uh, uh, John chapter too, is John writes to his church, you're either all in or you're all out. Love God, hate the world, or hate the world and love God. You've got to pick. Which one are you going to pick? Like these choose sides sort of things. And again, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm in this really tough spot as a 14-year-old kid trying to go to this camp, hearing this kind of message of um, polarization of which camp am I going to be in and not wanting to be painted into either one. Because the problem was I really liked Ren and Stimpy and girls. Uh, because I liked Ren and Stimpy, that affected my luck with the girls. And there was an inverse relationship that I wouldn't figure out until about the age of 17. Uh, but it took me a few years to realize the manipulative tools that were being leveraged in the battle for my spiritual soul. And so this is how I eventually dealt with this. Oh, they're just being manipulative. Like what they're offering is eternal bliss or eternal damnation. Um, and in that sense, if that's the issue that's being uh, handed out, if the issue was the goal, uh, the decision was basically self-preservation. I mean, what 14 year old kid when given the option between going to a friend's house and going to detention chooses detention, right? Uh, of course you're going to choose this. And I felt like it was a false choice uh, eventually. And so I justified it later as an adult going, that was just a manipulative way of you know, offering me this thing that wasn't real. And so I kind of denied that sort of, I rejected that approach um, because the parameters were wrong and, and rightly so. I, I don't think that that's really how faith um, actually works. I think that this idea of future payment of something is, is a terrible motivation for it because I'm living in the here and now. So what do I do with this? It took me a few years to realize that the problem uh, happening was this. And yet, those texts actually exist. Like Revelation chapter three, verse 21, it's a hot and cold water. That actually exists. John actually wrote to his church, either hate the world or love the other. Um, you can't do kind of both. There's um, Jesus in his own words, talks about God and mammon and God and stuff, right? Like um, you can't serve two masters. You've got to choose one and that makes you hate the other one. Uh, these texts actually exist in the collection of the church's early thoughts and what it means to follow Christ. And, and Jesus actually told some of these parables. So what? then are we supposed to do? As much as I dislike the radical polarization concept of it, like how do I, I can't piecemeal scripture and take what I like and, and reject what I don't. 
um, if I'm going to be true to this thing, then what do I deal with or how do I deal with all this? And uh, my concept to you, if you're dealing with this tension right now, and if you were in this room, then I would kind of be able to feel that tension a little bit more. And I'd probably linger a little bit more in silence and let you sit in that a little bit. But since you're at home and I can't see it, uh, it doesn't work as well. Um, It really becomes a question of then ultimate allegiance. What matters most to you? What in the end will matter most to you? God or mammon, God or stuff, God or appearances, God or pride, right? Um, Kierkegaard doesn't leave us hanging with this. He continues on. Can there be something in life that has power over us, which little by little causes us to forget all that is good? Is there anything in life that slowly and surely kind of ebbs away or chips away or wears down the edges of our commitment at one time when we made and we said, God, I'm in. Like, I'm, I, I want to follow Christ. I want to live my life in the way that Christ would live his life. And yet after that decision, things erode and slowly erode away. And can this ever happen to anyone who has heard the call of eternity quite clearly and strongly? Perhaps Perhaps maybe it wasn't real. Perhaps I didn't hear it clearly enough. Perhaps it wasn't strong enough or whatever. If this can ever be, then one must look for a cure against it. Praise be to God that such a cure exists. To quietly make a decision. To quietly and eventually, finally, stop talking about it. And to make a decision to jump off the cliff. Either do it or don't do it. Either jump or get off the rock. And have you ever noticed the feeling or the mentality that goes through your mind in those few milliseconds between when your feet leave the rock and before you hit the water and you realize nothing I can do right now is going to change the fact that I'm about to get cold and I'm about to get wet and I'm about to hit this water. There's those few moments where you realize I'm so committed to this. There is no possible thing that I could do to reverse course, that this decision is going to have an impact. Now, I haven't fully realized it yet. There's still like a few seconds to go, but it is inevitable and it's about to happen and there's nothing I can do about it. Now this is happening. The decision has been made. I made it. I stopped talking about it and I actually did something about it and there's no going back now. According to the... uh, authors of scripture who wrote down for themselves what they saw and the teaching of the person of Jesus and how they led their churches early on in terms of trying to figure out what it meant to live out being a Christian in that first century. According to all of them, your faith decision, what you decide to make of Jesus and what that decision entails about the consequences of that decision is a lot like what I just described, this jumping off a cliff, or at least it should be. And if it hasn't felt like that in a while, then perhaps, perhaps, maybe um, we need to reevaluate that kind of decision. Beware the temptation to think that talking at the top of the rock is the same as jumping off. Beware the temptation to think that talking about living the way that Jesus would live is somehow progress for you. More on that next week. The next time that you jump off of your boat or your friend's boat, better yet, or off an edge of a cliff uh, that's 15 feet, but it feels like 100, does my faith feel at all like this? Because I'm, I'm assuming you're going to do some of that, either this, it's like a hundred and something this week, right? You're going to be doing something to get cool. And perhaps it's going to involve cliff jumping. In those moments, I, my prayer would be that this kind of 
registers in your brain has my, when was the last time my faith, my personal decision to follow Christ felt like this? Or does it feel a little bit different? Or am I standing at the edge speculating on how that water might feel? Praise be to a God that such a cure exists to quietly, to quietly make a decision. Next week, we come back. The text is going to be the same, but we're going to talk about self-deception. I hope you can join us for that.